Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Stefano Bini and I will be your host for this new season, bringing you the best talks from the DocSF Experience 2021. In our last segment, we heard from Dr. Nancy Lynch and her panel on the DocSF Venture Desk as she rounded out the Friday session of DocSF 21. Now, Saturday started off with a big bang, a supernova, if you will, the DocSF keynote, which we bring you now. We were super excited to have Dr. Robert Wachter as our keynote speaker this year. He is the chair of medicine at UCSF, named the number one department of medicine in the nation in 2021, author of The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm at the Dawn of the Digital Age, which was a New York Times bestseller, one of three he's had. He recently became a highly impactful voice on Twitter relative to COVID-19. We have a wide-ranging conversation about technology, trends that will impact medical care, the morphing of healthcare as we know it, and even why he has been a little disappointed by artificial intelligence, which he feels has yet to fulfill its promise. Join me and Dr. Wachter on the DocSF 21 virtual stage. Dr. Robert Wachter, I could not be more honored to have you on DocSF, the Digital Face Conference, talking to us a little bit about your perception and your viewpoint on healthcare as we go forward. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to be here. You know, for those of us who don't know you, Dr. Walker, as you know, you're the chairman of the Department of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco. You've read tons of books, the ones that, and lots and lots of articles. But the one that interests me, of course, is The Digital Doctor, Hope, Hype, and Harm in the Dawn of Medicine's Computer Age, which was a New York Times bestseller. I have a signed copy that you gave me at Stanford, which I, I cherish. Yeah. And 13 times, uh, Modern Healthcare Magazine ranked you as one of the most influential physician executives in the United States, and you topped the list in 2015. And as COVID hit us in 2021, you took to Twitter and became one of, arguably one of the most listened to voices on the space, 150 million downloads, 170,000 followers. So you have been part of the digital revolution in medicine and healthcare in general, and your perspective on this is tremendous. So the area we'd like to focus on today is the patient experience, how the patient will interface with the healthcare system going forward. We have a big initiative in that area at UCSF that you're leading and a big part of. Why don't you walk us through that with an orthopedic specialty care perspective as you do? Okay, well, taking into account that I, I know next to nothing about orthopedics, and luckily I still have my own original joints, uh, <laughs> I assume that will not last forever. I mean, my perspective, I, I wrote the book you mentioned, Stefano, in, in 2015, and I wrote it because I was so utterly disappointed by the first five or 10 years of digitization, which really was what I've come to believe as the foundational years. It was the years during which we went from a paper industry to a digital industry, and that's hard. And the tools that we had at our disposal were fine, but basically solved some clinical and business problems. Basically, how do you capture the data, move it around in pretty simple ways, begin to get patients engaged, but mostly replicated our old work processes, our old analog work processes, just did it in computers. And that's fine and better. You know, I mean, I've had medical errors because people couldn't read my handwriting on a prescription. We've all had cases where people did badly because the information that was in the chart in the hospital didn't make it to the clinic or, or, or vice versa. So it certainly was better than paper. 
But I think we've come to recognize the limitations of what the big enterprise electronic health record can do for us. And I think we're entering a new and I think really exciting era. And the era is one in which I think of it as the post-electronic health record era, where we begin to take advantage of all this new data that's sloshing around in our digital tubes to analyze it, to make sense of it, to predict from it, to derive intelligence from it, to make recommendations to providers and to patients based on it. And I think if you think about what we've done in the first five to 10 years of our digital revolution, we've done almost very, we've done very little of that. We've mostly digitized the record and used it in pretty simple ways that mostly replicate our old way of doing things. So I think the next 10 years, five years, but particularly 10 years is gonna be fascinating. And the mega trends here are being less wedded to the set of competencies that the EHR can deliver to us and much more open to new ideas, new ways of doing work. And a big one of those, there are many, many of those will change the way we all do our work as clinicians. But a big one among those changes is the engagement of patients in their own care. Patients being able to get care at home, telemedicine is a big part of that. Patients being able to be monitored through data signals that come from their daily life, whether at home and at work, engaging patients and family members and being active participants in their care rather than passive recipients of care, and no longer thinking about the office visit or the ER visit as the only way care gets delivered, data gets measured, care gets delivered, but thinking much more broadly about care being a fairly continuous and much more nuanced set of activities that take advantage of a whole set of competencies that the EHR mostly doesn't do. I mean, the HRs were yeah. built to be patient, be, be clinician facing and sort of business leader facing. But I think we're going to be in a world where it's much more patient facing, where the kinds of competencies we need from our digital systems are much more nuanced and they're more about data visualization. They're about decision support. They're about analytics and predictions. They're about motivating patients and, and, and clinicians to do things differently. This is support delivered in new ways. So I think it's a really exciting new era that we're entering, but more complicated than just buying Epic or Cerner and turning it on in your office or in your hospital. And when we get into this idea of the hospital at home, there's actually a huge trend even in moving relatively higher acuity cases into the home with the support of sensors and maybe a workforce that tracks and travels to patients' homes rather than hospitalizing in a very costly experience. How are we going to manage this massive amount of data? I know as clinicians, we're upset when people were bringing in printout yeah. of what they'd read on the internet, never mind expecting us to track their Fitbit data. How are we going to manage that? Yeah, I think that's the trillion dollar question. You know, hospital home is not a new concept. It's, you know, there were the early, early research on the value of hospital home came from Johns Hopkins and it was 30 years ago. And it really didn't catch on because there was no payment model for it. And the technology was not quite ready for prime time. What we've seen with telemedicine in the past year is how quickly these things can catch on. If the technology is ready for prime time, if the payment model and the regulatory environment catches up to it, it just grows really quickly. And I think we're probably just about ready for hospital at home to have its moment. So hospital home is only one set of a broad array of activities that we used to think of patients having to come into an institution to get data collected, to see a provider, to get monitored, to get recommendations. And that, uh, that box is wide open now. So whether it's hospitalizing a patient, but doing that at home with home IVs and home sensors and home monitoring, 
whether it's managing chronic diseases of people that are at home because every day they, you know, they go in a survey and they answer a few questions and they breathe into their iPhone. It's going to get more and more sophisticated and more complex. I mean, from an orthopedic world, of course, monitoring their gait through sophisticated sensors, delivering to them physical therapy at home. In my world, you can imagine a world, this is no longer science fiction, that you urinate in the morning and the toilet has sensors that analyze your electrolytes. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but it's, it's all true. So I think that's really exciting. But here is the big problem. Periodically, I hear people talk about this and they're going to say, how great is it going to be for a primary care doctor for his or her 1800 patients in the panel to be, you know, those patients are all going to be collecting data all day long on sensors and all that data is going to go to the primary care doctor and the primary care doctor is going to say, thank you. Now that's a world I'm not familiar with. In my world, <laughs> the 300 primary care doctors that work for me will quit by five o'clock this afternoon if that happens. And I imagine that's true for you too. And so yeah. We have to figure out how to manage that data stream in a way that is going to involve bots, artificial intelligence, health coaches, all sorts of people and technology that takes all that data in, figures out what's signal, what's noise. Think about the ICU and now multiply it by 100. You know, all this data, but now in a low prevalence population where a, most, a lot of the signals are gonna be false positives. How do you monitor that, mine it? And then for the patients that's having a real problem, it goes to you to react. But for the patients that's not having a real problem or a problem that could be managed by a nurse or a physician's assistant or a health coach, that's the person it goes to. Really complicated. It's sort of a whole middle layer of the health system that sometimes we call care traffic control that we just haven't developed yet. That's going to be a crucial part of making all this work. If all of these data streams for people at home gets mainlined into the health system and to the doctor, I think the system falls apart in about five minutes. The system, of course, wasn't designed to ingest that kind of information. It not not ingest it, not analyze it, not separate noise from signal. There's no payment model for it. And you think you can think of an analog to it now. Why are doctors so unhappy with their electronic health records? Partly because they're clunky, but partly because it's enabled a level of patient contact and patient access that we didn't sort of, you know, we weren't ready for. We don't have a lawyer like we bill you in six minute increment business model. And so, you know, think physicians are complaining constantly about their inbox. Now take that inbox and make it a digital inbox with signals coming into it constantly impossible. So we've got to figure out how to monitor that and deal with it. I don't think we have begun to do that yet. The interface between the patient and the healthcare system, which now funnels through the clinician, will have to change. How do you see that happening? Do you think patients themselves will change the way their expectations of the way they care to live? Will they accept chatbots? Will they accept an AI machine that's making some interesting decisions around yeah i think so because they've, they've you know it's not like we're the first in here they've learned to accept that from amazon and from netflix and from the bank of america and fidelity and from uh you know travel sites they've learned the things they used to do in person in a person-to-person -person relationship now is done through ai with recommendations coming from a digital system now it's healthcare. I don't want to sort of trivialize it. It's not the same as a restaurant recommendation. And that's partly what Silicon Valley all, always gets wrong. It's like fail fast is a mantra that works fine for a restaurant rec. Not so good right. when someone <laughs> dies. <laughs> and so we've got to be very careful about it. But I think that most people don't want to see us if they don't have to. I think for their basic needs, they would love to have a digitally enabled system 
as long as it's a good one, as long as it gives them the right recommendations at the right time, as long as it sort of, it triages appropriately. And when the patient's doing poorly and needs to see a doctor, they don't go into some, you know, voicemail tree. They actually get triaged appropriately to someone who can handle their problem. But you know, they don't want to see us for basic, you know, for adjusting their blood pressure medicines or in your world for sort of routine post-op care if they're doing fine. They, I think they'd like to be able to do that independently with appropriate support that we know can increasingly be delivered either through technology or by less expensive people enabled by technology to do things that they can't do today. Let's go to where you see the biggest impact of the COVID-19 epidemic has been in terms of the adoption of these technologies, people's comfort level, and what do you think it portends for the speed at which some of this is going to happen? Yeah, I, it's been interesting because, you know, pandemics provide this opportunity for massive innovation, you know, because you, you know, so the status quo doesn't work. So you've got to try, you can try new things. Often the regulatory barriers fall. You know, clearly the, the stock answer is telemedicine. And that, you know, went from 1% to 70%. And at UCSF, we're still at 40 or 50%. Many places have gone down to 20. So it's clearly here to stay never going to go away again and going to be an important part of healthcare. I think the second thing in the technology world that tipped was dashboards. I think that when, you know, we now have seen in our institutions at, and on the website, we've seen what it looks like to take digital data in real time and deliver it to clinicians, to leaders and to patients in ways that are attractive, appropriate sort of modern principles of data visualization. I mean, when I'm trying to figure out what's going on with COVID, I can go onto the web and in two seconds, see the curves of what are, what are cases look like in Michigan today? And what do they look like in California? And how many vaccines have they given out in Texas? I mean, that's breathtaking and it's something that wasn't there before. And I think it's gotten everybody used to the idea of taking digital data and giving it back to people. If you just give them Excel spreadsheets, you might as well not do anything. You know, it, that was the fallacy of the first five years of, all right, we're, you know, it's great. It's all digital data. We'll give you their your data. It's worthless unless it's processed and delivered to you in a way that's in bite size, beautifully visualized, up to date, trusted. I think we've seen what that looks like in COVID. And I, I think that's created a new expectation for clinicians, for patients, and for healthcare leaders. Here are the things that didn't tip. Might've thought this might be a golden age for AI. And I, don't, I can't think of an example of an AI application that really tipped over the last year. It doesn't mean it's not going to, but sort of where artificial intelligence is in the type cycle, I think it meant it was not quite ready for prime time in healthcare. I think the data sharing apps, as in you know some of the contact tracing apps like the Google and Apple uh, collaboration, did not really catch on in part because people don't trust those companies with their data and in part because the data had, they had to connect to public health departments and they found that, all right, Google and Apple have a very cool app, but the IT system, the public health department is two soup cans and a piece of string. And so, you know, all of the components have to be ready for prime time. So I think those were things AI and the data sharing kind of stuff did not sort of transform the way it might have. But I do think telemedicine clearly proved that it was ready for prime time and will never go back back into the box again. You make some great points about that. And also, as you pointed out, that what we have today is not what we'll have tomorrow. This, these technologies, platforms need to evolve. And where they're clunky today, they may not be clunky tomorrow. In fact, in three or four iterations, they may be preferable. A good example is what happened with banking, right? Online banking was really clunky at the beginning. Why would anybody yeah. ever change? And now it's like, why would you ever go to a teller, right? Right. No so question about it. And I think, yeah, patients are getting used to 
seeing their data, patient poor. Now, you know, a huge deal was this week that now it's a law that everybody has to open up their charts to patients anywhere. And so patients now are going to get used to having this data, having these tools, being able to connect with the healthcare system in ways that are don't require a 15 minute visit. It's going to open up a lot of new opportunities, including you know, if you were the Mayo Clinic 10 years ago, 20 years ago, you said, I want to have a presence beyond Rochester, Minnesota. You had to buy or build office buildings in Scottsdale and in Texas. You don't have to anymore. And so we're going to see a new national marketplace in healthcare. Now, not for having your surgery done yet, but for con consultation, for, you know, evaluation and management kind of thing, second opinions, you're going to see a national marketplace that could not have occurred in a non-digital world. And that opens up the geography. It used to be if you were the only game in town, you won. You didn't have to be all that good because people couldn't see anybody else unless they wanted to get on a jet to go somewhere. That's just not going to be true anymore. And I think that's going to change healthcare in some fundamental ways. So we've covered a great deal of ground here. We started out with this idea of data sharing and, and the complexity of it, the electronic health record no longer being the end-all and be-all with some challenges coming into it. The progression as we move into this future where these technologies are applied, but pointing out that some of the things that we thought might have taken off in this pandemic might have given us some great insights actually didn't quite be, turn out to be as powerful as, as they might one day be. Mm -hmm. We're just not there yet. Yeah. Um, love your point about the fact that as the data that we ingest into the healthcare system becomes less accurate, there's more false positives and we need to be aware of how to manage that because it can be alarm bells everywhere, especially when they're false. I think that was a very good point you made. On the whole, is there anything you want to leave us with as you look out into this landscape of the innovation, particularly in the patient, the digitizing of the patient experience that you think, you know, this is something that's worth keeping an eye on? Well, I think if you're either in a big hospital or if, even if you're in an office, we're going to have to sort of understand how to manage all of this in a different way. You know, in five years ago, the IT department of a big hospital was the EHR department. That was it. You built this, you brought in this enterprise system and maybe you innovated a little bit at the margins of it, but it was hard to do. It basically is the system either did something or didn't. Now it's it's so much more diverse and broad. You're going to have to figure out what can the EHR do? What do I need to buy as a third party tool and can it link to the HR? Is there something I need to build? Is, you know, it because the EHRs are just not, they weren't built, they were built to be EHRs. They weren't built to do a whole lot of patient facing work. They're trying to learn, they're trying to get better. They weren't built to do telemedicine. They weren't built to do home monitoring. They weren't built to do population health, to do analytics, to do AI, to do data visualization. These are all the things that are going to mark the digital future. And so as you think about how to organize your practice or organize your health system, the set of competencies and the governance that you establish to do EHR is not going to work to do digital transformation in the future. So we're going to have to do a lot of internal reorganization to make sure that we get it right. Thank you for that. That was brilliant. That was actually a terrific way to end this segment. And I want to thank you for taking time with time out of your busy schedule to be with us today. Give us that perspective. I am very, very grateful that you joined us at the UCSF Digital Reviews Conference San Francisco. It's a great. It's an honor to be here, Stefano. Thank you for having me. On behalf of all of us at DocSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference in San Francisco, thanks for listening and for joining our community. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a five-star review and tell your friends. If you're interested in joining our team, participating, or being interviewed on DocSF, please let us know. If not, please join the revolution and listen up for our next podcast.
Hello. Well, that really, really was great. I learned so much and it was a great encapsulation. And I'm actually John here by Shauna Butler, introducing you to Shauna, my, my co-host. Good to see you guys again. Yeah. And Bob, that segment was really phenomenal. Can I start where we left off? This idea of competencies and the variance between the variation between what people consider to be technology, which is electronic health record, we see we're moving into a different kind of technology that was going to require a different form of governance. I'd love to get a sense of what that means to you. Yeah, probably means something different in a small clinical office versus a large health system. But I think the, the kind of bottom line for me is that this kind of governance and oversight you had of your digital system when your digital system was largely a monolithic electronic health record, kind of one thing, one tool that did everything, doesn't work very well when you're beginning to move into the post-electronic health record era, where you are beginning to try to figure out what are the new third-party tools, whether it's built by a startup or built by Amazon or Microsoft or Google. What are the things we need to build ourselves? How does this all weave together? How do we understand the needs in the orthopedic practice and versus the needs in the GI practice? And part of the ch challenge of innovation in this space, I think, is the sort of blending of top-down and bottom-up. You need to understand the needs of the frontline people Holy. and the patients. But you also can't have 50 different solutions in an enterprise because that's called a mess. And that makes it, for a patient, it yeah. looks like you don't have your act together if they have one really cool innovation as the way they interact with ortho, and then they go to see urology the next day, and it's a completely different thing in the same health system. They think, you know, what the hell's going on here? These people don't have their acts together. So how do you create a governance that allows for innovation, allows for fail fast, allows for trial and error, but at the end of the day says, okay, this is the one we're going to use and now we're going to scale it across the enterprise. And this is how it links back and integrates into the electronic health record. Because if people, if doctors or patients have to sign on to a whole different tool and there's no sort of cross-fertilization and linkage to the EHR, that also is going to work. So I think you almost need double governance. You need the governance for the core EHR functions that are probably not going to be very innovative. They're going to be making the trains run on time. They're going to be privacy security oriented. They're going to be no downtime oriented. They're going to be, you know, let's do the update, that kind of thing. And then kind of a whole separate set of governance and, and culture that says, here's the innovation team. They're, they're ta tackling a big, complicated problem, longer time horizon. They might get it wrong, but now they've gotten it right. That's the thing. We're going to do it, bake it into the EHR, scale it across the enterprise. It's just a new way of thinking. And I think, you know, at UCSF, we're doing that through the, the Center for Digital Health Innovation. I think every place is going to have to figure out a solution to that problem. It's just a different problem than you had five or 10 years ago when your big job was putting in and managing an electronic health record. So, Bob, I wanted to pick up on your comment about megatrends. And this ties very nicely to what you were just talking about with the EHR. So the megatrends really are not tied to the EHR, but rather, I think, to our imagination and to some degree, our courage and our inclusion. And when you are referring to that EHR and the clinicians being together, I think one of the things that we've seen at this moment in time, using the data, being able to visualize it, is how we're actually able to coordinate across teams, across the, the types of care that needs to happen. And you know, picking up on your point, if you walk into the ortho space and you need orthopedic care and they have figured out this very seamless approach to understanding who you are, what your needs are, what your experience has been, and then you also then walk over into women's health and they don't have any of that, it creates this whiplash effect. So mm -hmm. 
in the megatrends, you know, you mentioned the data dashboards and being able to use these tools to really think about it differently. What are, you know, in your most courageous, most inclusive, most bold move, what do you think we need to be doing? How do we need to be thinking about this so that we actually enjoy what we're doing? Because I think that, you know, you mentioned the clinician burnout. That's a very real problem that I think our imagination and our innovation can actually help solve. Well, I hope so. I mean, I think that the mega trend is more data coming at us from many, many more places and not just the clinician facing places that we're used to, but increasingly from patient facing places. And the mega trend is the, the tendency of organizations to just turn that data on in ways that are not particularly useful. And you're either overwhelmed with data points or you're getting spreadsheets that are not useful, and the clinicians then begin to burn out, you're gonna start having patients burn out too, because they're gonna start seeing all this data and being asked to manage it. Like, what does so, it mean? <laughs> right, what, what is it? I don't know what it means, and can I see this in a form that actually is meaningful to me? And you know, we know what that looks like because we're used to that with managing our financial services now and other things. You, know, you go to Fidelity, they understand you know, nothing about finances, but they know how to give me data that tells me whether I'm ready to retire next week or not. And we don't do that in healthcare. So the megatrends are we're going to go through this period of time where the data overwhelms the capacity of the people who need the data, both patients and clinicians, to use it. We're going to see burnout. We're going to see false positives and, and people kind of running around. And then good healthcare systems are going to say, that's not working. <laughs> we need to build in new tools and whether we build them or buy them, and maybe the electronic health record vendors will build some of them too. And if they do and they're good, we'll probably prefer those because integration is tricky. So, you know, if Epic or Turner builds it and it's good enough, you're probably going to use it. But in many cases, it won't be because it's not what they do for a living. They're not particularly great at it yet. They're trying. So I think what we're going to be doing is finding tools or building tools that provide you the view that you as a doctor or a nurse or a patient need to see that's actually useful. That's okay, I understand how the patient's doing, what I need to do, helps me make a diagnosis, helps me make a recommendation, helps me bring a team together, communicates with the physical therapist. All that stuff's gonna happen, but it's not gonna happen naturally. And the natural tendency, unfortunately, the mega trend is we will get overwhelmed before we realize, oh, we should have predicted that and anticipated that and built yeah. the system to prevent us from being overwhelmed. You want to pick up on this one other piece that you talked about when you said that the companies, you know, are, are the builders of these products haven't been particularly good at it. My theory on that is that they haven't been incentivized to do it. And we talked about, I mean, you mentioned the regulatory structure and the financial incentives. At this moment in time, we saw a significant relaxation, which allowed a lot of these innovations to move forward. You get to advise folks in CMS, people who are in the regulatory space, people who are in the payment space. What are you advising them so that we can avoid maybe that predictable cycle of burnout and just get right to really meaningful products that actually improve care and experience and outcomes? Yeah, I think so. It's a great question. I'm not confident that the incentives are the dominant thing, although they are an important thing. I think the, the, the population-based, value-based incentives that drive a system to say, if we manage this population of patients with, you know, after hip replacement better and safer and, and less expensively, we win. 
That will incent us to try to do this and buy or build products that help us do that. I think the main regulatory thing here is the interoperability. And I used to think about interoperability in a very different way. You really used to think about it, does my Epic system communicate with your Cerner system? Or if you know there's a specific EHR that an ortho practice yeah. uses because they're good ortho EHR, does that all communicate? I don't think that's the big deal in interoperability anymore. It really is that if a if a startup has built a third-party tool that absolutely is great solving a, a, an important problem that you have in caring for patients, and then I go to my EHR people and I say, this is the tool we want to use. It's fabulous. We've used it. It's wonderful. It helps solve all these problems. We need to integrate it into the HR. If I hear from them, no problem. You know, it's not one number one on our queue, but it's number five. We'll get to it in three weeks. It'll take us a couple hours. That's very different than la, 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 la. There are 2,000 things on my queue. The integration's impossible. It's going to take us 100 hours. Epic or Cerner is building something like us, and they tell us it will be every bit as good. It's going to be a year or two, which, of course, it's always going to be every bit as good, and it's going to be a year or two. So it's the integration of it's going to creating a much more dynamic market, a la App Store kind of thing. Yeah. That allows then, for seamless integration. That's the real regulatory barrier. I'll let you do. I just want to pick up on what, when you said integration, you're talking about, I think one of the things that we have been missing to make this work, and I want to put that out there to get you to have a response to it. Oftentimes we are integrating within the health system and we know that care and life and health happens outside. So as it becomes more patient facing and we are using Fitbits or smart pillows or smart toilets or whatever. That's the piece. When we talk about interoperability, it's not the Epic and the Cerner's working together. It is our health records working with our life records. So I, Stefan, I know you want to get in there, but I didn't want to lose that point because when well, we talk about it, yeah. Yeah. I think a quick comment to that, Sean. I, I, when I talk about interoperability and that kind of interoperability, a third-party tool that solves an important problem and then links together with our core enterprise system so it's seamless, I don't really care whether it's a product that is doctor or nurse facing, or it's a product that's patient facing and the patient's using it at home. But at the end of the day, it has to all connect up to yeah. some core enterprise record. The problem gets even a, a little bit harder once it's all in home. You know, at least we kind of semi know how to manage what's in our building. But you're absolutely right. More and more of this stuff will be related to data that's being collected in real life, at, in the home, in the workplace. And that integration gets even harder, but it's every bit as important. Yeah. So, yeah, actually, Sort of integrating back, I wanted to walk back a little bit to the uh, hospital home. I think you are one of the inventors of the hospitalist concept in the hospital systems to begin with, that we need to concentrate I, I, those I coined, kinds of... I coined, I coined the term, but if I was smart, I would have trademarked it and I'd be... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I wanna, it also ties back to this question we have about data sharing, interoperability. How fast do you think it's going to move that we be able to actually take really sick people to the home? Does that mean we have to change of workforce around a little bit? Because... You've, you, we created a hospitalist concept. Do we, are we going to have a homist? I mean, you know, I'm talking about some, you know, a, a group of physicians, clinicians who are geared to managing patients at home through sensors. And a Mercy's been dealing with managing that kind of concept. Yeah, and, no question. Yeah, no, no, no question about that. There will be, if, if you think about, if you take, you know, a fifth of the current census you have in your hospital and you say they're not going to be in the building anymore, they're going to be in their house, which I think is not an inconceivable end game here. Okay, who's doing that? What is the combination of technology, people, and the people? You have to be open to the concept, like the people include the people that fix the pump on the IV when it's not working. The P, the, the you know, who is the doctor? Who's the nurse? Who's all of that? And who is mining all of the data? Is it 
clinicians or is it AI? Is it bots? Is it some combination of all that? I think, you know, we have to think openly about that, what that model looks like so that it scales. But I think a key issue is you can have a really slick hospital home idea and it looks good on a, on a whiteboard. It's the moment of truth in the emergency room. The doc in the emergency room is seeing a sick patient and can either admit the patient upstairs by getting on the phone and saying, you know, Bob, come down, I got a patient for you, or can say, this patient can go home, but now I have got to organize 10 different things. I got to get the IV pump, the oxygen, the sensors, the blah, blah, blah. If that is not as easy as admitting the patient upstairs, it's not going to happen. So it's, you know, what's the regulatory environment that facilitates that? What's the payment environment that facilitates that? And then what is the kind of business environment so that, a, you know, there is a turnkey solution, a company that sort of does that for you. I think when we do that, the data are quite clear that patients prefer being home. There are a whole lot of people in hospitals that can be cared for much, much less expensively at home. And the outcomes are every bit as good. But it's not a straight shot to say, OK, that's all great. It's going to happen tomorrow. People have been working on this for 30 years. It has not tipped because it's complicated and the business models haven't yet supported it. We actually have seen some good examples of managing maternity care at home during the pandemic. And so by being able to have the sensors at home, doing blood pressure checks, weights, doing a check-in, we've actually reduced the number of visits that actually somebody had to go do in person. And I will tell you, moms who are pregnant with small children at home really love that. And they found, you know, they can feel just as connected so that the visits that they do in person really are the ones that needed to. And I think, you know, to your point, it has taken a while, but when there's urgency behind something, what we've learned, we can do hard things fast and we can do them yeah. safely. And when yeah. we align the regulation and the business model behind it. Yeah. The urgency is going to go away. You know, that's the problem. The urgency will go away from COVID. And the question will be what remains, what, what happens when it's will not. We, will we still bring that urgency to solving this problem that yeah. we did during a crisis? So yeah. anyway. So, and of, of course, our, our colleagues in Europe, when they were overwhelmed hospital systems, they actually learned how to trick, take care of patients with COVID at home. Very high acuity, very complex patients, and very quickly set up, figured out how to do that. Those tracking online. It was actually, we didn't quite ever get to the point where it's that bad here in the States, but they figured it out. So. You're absolutely right. Lots of megatrends driving that. And uh, we're Bob, we can time. have this conversation for forever. But again, thank <laughs> you right. for being with us. Great. Thank, thank you. you.